Welcome to Asshole Court, the podcast where a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. The 11-point scoring works like this. On the low side, a score of 1 equals an asshole rating equivalent to Mr. Rogers. And on the high side, a score of 11 equals an asshole rating equivalent to Hitler. Pre-show asshole scores are given, and at the end of each show, after all information has been laid out, all three judges will give their final score. The subject's final score will be the average of these three numbers. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time, especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously. So, just don't. Only in America. If Don King were an 80s sitcom character, Only in America would absolutely be his catchphrase. Born poor and black in Cleveland in a time in which that practically guaranteed one would never elevate themselves above that lowly economic station, King would manage to achieve not only staggering wealth, but also fame on an international scale. However, the way in which he managed to achieve all of this is arguably as odd and eyebrow-raising as his famous hairstyle. Only in America, indeed. Just like that phrase is open to interpretation, the life of Don King can be viewed by one person as aspirational and by another as grotesque and immoral. So today, we'll examine his life and, utilizing a score from 1 to 11, we'll give our determination on whether Don King is an asshole. Welcome to Asshole Court. Don King is born in Cleveland, Ohio on August 20th, 1931. By all accounts that I could find, he was absolutely born into poverty. On December 7th, 1941, young Don's life was forever changed. On that day, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and thrust the United States into World War II against the Japanese and the Germans. Oh, yeah, and uh, Don's dad died in a steel mill accident, too, so... Oh, jeez. Oh, are, you, are you serious? Yeah, same, same exact day. Pearl Harbor and his dad perished in a, a steel mill accident? It yeah. sounds like the beginning of, like, a comic book or something like that. It sounds like the beginning of Rudy. <laughs> Do you think that, uh, that Don King's dad was one of the guys that died in the steel mill accident in Rudy? Probably. That may be the best part of the whole movie, too, in my opinion. <laughs> It's all a bunch of bullshit, Rudy. No, that was a. Uh, I've got a friend that was born on September 11th, and he was oh. in fifth grade when it happened. And they didn't really tell everybody what was going on at mm-hmm. the time, but his parents like freaked out and came and checked him out of school. And he was all like, "Yeah, you're checking me out for my birthday." <laughs> and they were like, "No, we're not." A little weird. Well, you have to remember, one of our friends was uh, 21st birthday. 21st birthday. Oh, really? September 11th, 2001. Yeah. Wow. You 21st yeah. birthday. Yep. He would have gotten real drunk, anyways, but. Jeez. Yeah, so got double drunk that day. So uh, apparently Don's mother, Hattie, received a small insurance settlement for the accident. I seriously doubt it was very much at all. Well, you're 1941, you said? Yeah, December 7th, 1941. Probably a bigger payout than they're getting nowadays for the same thing. She is a poor black woman. Yeah, there's not a chance in 1941. Hell. They shafted her hard. 
they probably paid for the funeral and gave him like a week's salary. I was like, yeah. get the fuck out of here. They're like, here's seven, uh, seventeen dollars, and also his clothes uh, that he blew up in. Uh, maybe, <laughs> One shoe. Yeah, uh, you could uh, if you want to. You can you can cuddle with those, and when you want to remember him. Actually, it, it must have been at least somewhat decent because she used that to relocate the family to a middle class Cleveland neighborhood. But again, it wasn't long before the money began to run out and uh, she had to resort to baking and selling pies to make ends meet. Man, she must have been baking a lot of pies. I think, I mean, honestly, it's one of those situations where she probably got like a lump sum or something like that and like bought a house with it. You see it with like lottery winners yep. and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait a second. Do we have to pay property tax on this? Did you, you know. ever see that girl that won like, it, it was maybe about 15 years ago. She won like a hundred million, 150 million in uh, the mega millions. And uh, she was from Georgia right around here. And they they asked her, you know, like, what are you going to do? And she was like, I'm going to Tybee. I was like, wow, you just won 150 million in Tybee Island hey. is your destination. <laughs> like, Beautiful. World class <laughs> beach. You see the fucking turtles on Tybee yeah, Island. He said, I got to be honest. He said, the sand looks like mud and the water <laughs> Also looks like it's mud. very brackish. Yes. You can't see anything. It's beautiful. It's great. There's a lot of people there. You should kayak in rivers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a lovely place. <laughs> uh, so anyway, she yeah she starts selling pies to make ends meet. At the same time, young Don and his brothers also begin selling roasted peanuts. Yes, their hustle. All right. So I knew about Don Kink selling peanuts, and all I could envision is going to the Braves game and sitting. You know, in the outfield. Peanuts, get yep. your peanuts. Boil peanuts. Oh, mother. Peanuts right here, son. <laughs> yeah. And you look I, over and you see the hair and you're like, that's pretty cool. I'm, well, I don't think he hair. had the hair at that point. Well, though. he had like the gray fro back at like no, at I, nine. I'm saying, had things gone sideways. Don, oh, yeah. And Don King worked for the kids. I Indians. see. I gotcha. He's selling peanuts. Ice cold beer. Yeah, right here. He was, Ice cold. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I mean, he'd be a great hawker at like the Cleveland Indians stadium. Yeah, I mean, the guy can sell anything. Well, and we'll definitely get into that here yeah. in a minute. So, anyways, the story goes that during uh, some point during his roasted peanut venture, Don began to slip lucky numbers into each bag. Seven. Number <laughs> number seven. Uh, and oh, I got uh, triple seven in mine. <laughs> this little bit of flair became popular with the local gamblers and number runners. <laughs> Hey, is this like on the back of the uh, Chinese food? You're lucky numbers yeah, yes. for like the fortune tickets. He was ahead of the game. <laughs> That's uh, how Triple Six Mafia got their name. Three Six Mafia and some uh, low main. I'll have the Triple Six. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have to order everything by the numbers. Yeah. You're like, I'll have the Triple Six with, I don't know. Uh, Boiled uh, peanuts. <laughs> with a, spicy UGK. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Man, all right. So uh, it was also around this time that Don became interested in boxing. He entered the Golden Gloves tournament as Donald the Kid King, but he actually didn't do too well. Yeah. According to the book, The Life and Crimes of Don King, The Shame of Boxing in America, which probably a little biased by that title. <laughs> he said, quote, King himself did not have the reputation for being a great fighter while in high school. He had four amateur fights as an 108-pound flyweight. Oh, Christ. Yeah. 108 pounds. That's, That's a tiny yeah. guy in high school. I mean, I was, yeah, I wrestled 112 in high school, and that was small, super you were, small. You were, yeah, you were a tiny guy. So Don King was tiny. He won his first two by decision, lost his third, and then uh, got knocked out in his fourth and final match. So 
I got knocked out and said, this isn't for me anymore. It's yeah. my swan song. <laughs> I mean, I, so I imagine he was feeling like pretty good after going two and out. He's like, I might have a real chance of this. <laughs> Things are looking up. Then I'm going to invite all my family to my fourth match here. <laughs> this ought to be the real tone setter for my career. Yeah, then he gets flatlined. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, he decided to exit the fight game and instead focus on the numbers racket that he had found himself immersed in while selling peanuts. Fourteen. Seven. King found that he was uh, really good at sales in general and the numbers game in particular. So I don't know if you guys know how the numbers game actually works, but I know that when I was younger, I always thought about like, oh, yeah, uh, you watch The Sopranos or, or whatever it was, any mafia movie. And you're like, yeah, running numbers. But I didn't actually know what it entailed. So if you don't know what it entails, uh, basically the numbers game, uh, also known as the numbers racket, is a form of illegal gambling or illegal lottery played mostly in poor and working class neighborhoods. Is that what you see out of like the back of uh, gas stations going on nowadays? Yeah, it's that's the new age one with the with the machines. I think. Yeah. But, I mean, basically, what it is, it's, it's like an unsanctioned, unregulated cash three, right? So for many years, the numbers has uh, been like three digits of quote the handle, the amount racetrack betters placed on race day at a major racetrack. But in Cleveland, it was a little different. What they would do was, and this is back in the day before you had computers and the stock market was accessible at every second you saw prices move up and down stocks didn't move like that back in the day so uh, or there was advances declines and unchanged right so stocks that advanced went up in price stocks that declined went down in price and stocks that were unchanged and in cleveland what they did was they used those numbers the middle digits of those numbers for the three numbers so that you had a way to check it so there was no it couldn't be rigged Okay. okay. It was like right. it was printed out in in the Wall Street Journal, and then they picked the middle digits. So if 125 moved up and 122 moved down and 222 stayed the same, the number was 222. 222. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so and that's and that's how they they, they ran it in Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland. Yeah. When that was when he was hanging out with like Bone Thugs and Harmony. Yeah. <laughs> Early in his day. Boom, 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 boom. I'll meet you at the crossroads. <laughs> and we can play numbers. <laughs> Seven. Seven. Four, 24. At this point, King was making a decent amount of money as a, as a numbers runner and eventually he became a bookie. But according to Don, his true aim was to be the next Clarence Darrow, the famous attorney and leading member of the American Civil Liberties Union. In order to achieve this, Don set his sights on attending Kent State University to study law. Unfortunately for Don, one of the summers in which he was hustling on numbers, he lost a winning bet slip and had to pay for the mistake out of his own money. Whoops. Oopsie. Yeah, this financial setback apparently destroyed his chances of going to the illustrious Kent State. Jesus, that's a tough name. Kent State <laughs> School a hard of time. Law. Kent State. Kent, Kent State, State School Kent of Law. State. Stool of Law. Stool of Law. <laughs> Learn how to take a great Cleveland steamer over here. <laughs> I'm the king of Cleveland. And I will shit on your chest and then sue myself. So, yeah, he didn't go to Kent State. He certainly didn't go to the Kent State School of Law. He eventually did take a couple classes at Case Western University. Where the all right, um, who knows? <laughs> exactly. All right, that's cool. But hey. he, sorry, Cleveland, if you're listening. Cleveland, I don't. Yeah, I mean Ohio in general. There's like four thousand universities up there, I think. But yeah, he dropped out and began to focus all of his energies on the numbers racket. That's and where the money's at, honestly, like seriously, I mean, yeah, if you're making a decent living running numbers, and they're like, 
Don, you might get a decent job and make half the money you are now if you spend all this money to go to college and work real hard and not do shit, you know, for the rest of your life in an office job. Or you can run numbers and make more money. And I mean, he was and he was rolling in it, too. And the thing like early on, they're like, hey, uh, yeah, you got to get to your bachelor's. Oh, and then there's three more years. So seven years of school or what are you pulling in right now? Yeah. King of the streets. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so like it's, it's, it would sound like a bit of a cop-out, but it's arguable because he ultimately did become a major player in the numbers game. By the mid-50s, King was one of the five major heads of the Cleveland numbers racket, and they were pulling down some absolutely insane money. One of these outfits was apparently pulling down $20,000 a day in 1950s money. That's $200,000 a day. Jeez, yeah, man. Wow, that is, that's big time money. Yeah. I mean, it's top line, but I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Like that's your revenue is uh, $200,000 a fucking day. And then you're like, well, what's, I mean. And what's the payout? You know what I mean? Like what? Yeah. I mean, I guess their overhead is you've got to pay out the, the, the runners and stuff like that. And you've got a house. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, or, yeah. By then, if you're that big, I imagine you have like a whole bunch of houses. Right. That are all running like basically cracked. Diversify your funds. Diversify well, and your then you have a you have a point of sale. Honestly, that's what you need back then. Mm-hmm. You know, your runners can only get you so far. You need a point of sale, and, and you can't yeah. do it online. So you need a house where people well, can exactly. come and place their bets. And that's what the king started as was one of those runners that would go and take bets from people in the streets, jot them he would down, memorize them. That's right. He would memorize them. Didn't want to be caught with the the sheet in his pocket right. or something that's like that. Right. Well, that's how he fucked up because remember he lost the <laughs> yeah. ticket and it paid yeah. out. It was oh. like, oh, there goes my dreams of being Clarence Darrow. <laughs> well, back to the hustle, shall yeah. we? He's like, I really want to fight for people's rights, but it's really expensive to do that. Or just take them all away. Just take. I'm stealing it all. So anyway, this leads us to December second, nineteen fifty four. And there wasn't, there's honestly not much I can find on this. And I really, really looked. But by all accounts that I found, apparently a couple of men attempted to rob Don King in his numbers parlor. Reports discuss shots exchanged between the involved parties. And then some say that it was not that way. I mean, who knows, dude? It's, it's weird. But either way, at the end of the day, at the close of the alleged robbery attempt, Don King had shot a man by the name of Hillary Brown in the back. <laughs> I read that earlier and saw the guy's name was Hillary, and I had to research whether that was oh, a man or a yes, woman. Thank you. Whether it was a woman sitting in the thing just innocently shot, because at that point I'm like, man, that mm-hmm. sucks. Yeah. If that was just an innocent woman. But you know, the guy trying to rob him, name was Hillary. Yeah. So that's a whole other discussion about why in God's name you would name your son. Hillary. Well, and have fun trying to research that because type in Donald and Hillary into a fucking Google search <laughs> and what comes up? Nothing but the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. But yeah, I, it drove me nuts because I literally was, I, it's hard to find anything on this and I was really digging because I want to find out. I was like, it sounds weird. He shot this guy in his back. I was like, I'm good, dude. I'm sorry for stealing your money. He's like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, man. That's what you get for getting named like a bitch. He's like, <laughs> Clint Eastwood. Your parents hated you. <laughs> oh, he's named for Sir Edmund Hillary. Climbed Everest. Uh, Boy named Sue. That's right. Excellent song. After a brief investigation, it was ruled a justifiable homicide. And King was actually released from custody and he was a free man. All right. So let me get this right. Mm-hmm. Somebody tries to rob his numbers house or his basically illegal gambling house. Mm-hmm. 
cops show up and he's able to claim self-defense on this. Yeah, I, that's basically how it worked out. All right. First of all, think about what year it is. What, the 50s? Yeah, 54. And we're in Cleveland? Cleveland. Okay. So probably, hopefully at that point, one of the lesser racial towns. So there may have been even some black cops working on the you know the case. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, Rust Belt. I think, in, I think of like Bull from Night Court and um, <laughs> just moronic cops like, oh, yeah, we got shot. Hmm, he's robbing the joint. Yeah. Or more than likely, he's lining all their pockets. That is true. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. That could have been it. But I just see kind of real lazy police work happening. Yeah. And especially at that time when gambling houses were getting robbed or like drug dealers getting robbed and people wind up dead. And they're kind of like, yep, that's kind of what happened. I mean, I don't think it's changed that much now. Usually, usually like gangland murders or stuff like that, that happens now is they're just like, well, this is what you get when you live that life of crime. Well, if it's a legal gambling house, like totally understandable. But if he was running an illegal gambling house and he's still, he, I don't know, he totally got off. It's still kind of. Well, I think like, he's probably paying people. But on top of that, I mean. The, the, I couldn't imagine him paying someone off. No. No, never. Is, no. I mean, he he wanted to be Clarence Darrow. He wanted to fight for the ACLU. So didn't happen that way, though. He he gets he gets out of that situation, and, and it's obviously is good for Don because a he got to shoot a guy without repercussions, <laughs> and b he builds some serious fucking street cred, and people in Cleveland are like, "Don't you stick up kids? Even think about robbing Don the Kid King and his numbers houses." <laughs> You got a taste for blood. That's right. But getting to smoke a dude that tried to rob you like your Arnold Schwarzenegger in an 80s action film isn't all rainbows and ponies because the local media attention on the case apparently brought the young king to the attention of a ruthless gangster from Cleveland named uh-huh. Alex Shondor Burns. And by all accounts that I found, Burns was an absolutely ruthless operator. He had been involved in a number of gangland murders, including one in which Burns had killed a man in front of his own kid outside an ice cream parlor. Oh, geez. Taking the kid for ice cream and then finding somebody and just popping them, you know, uh, some kind of... uh, I saw uh, Chuck Liddell inside an ice cream parlor one time. (laughs) (laughs) Did he shoot anybody afterwards? Nope. I was in Hollywood for a work thing. Look, we were walking down like Hollywood, the main strip, whatever the fuck it's called. Mm -hmm. Look inside an ice cream shop. There's Chuck Liddell, his wife and two kids eating ice cream. Like, was huh, he was huh. he was he just tongue bathing that cone? <laughs> oh no! So uh, we, the Ice Man. So actually, we walked down the street. We come back, and they had just walked out. And that dude limped across the street. He was in flip flops and like a UFC shirt and some shorts and like just with his wife and kids in Hollywood. Yeah, probably lived nearby. Yeah, so out for ice cream or whatever. He keeps forgetting what he's trying to order. <laughs> uh, where am I at again? Is it the pistachio and salmon? He's like, <laughs> I'll have a double double animal style. They're like, sir, this is not in an Alberger. This is a Baskin and Robbins. He's, I'm in Southern California. I've heard a lot about this burger, and I would just like it. <laughs> sir, mean, we only have cold stuff here. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is actually kind of flows into it because. These fighters just get treated like, I mean, dirt, yeah, they get dirt, used and abused dirt, and yep. they get flushed when they're done. And uh, Chuck Liddell, certainly, I mean, if you see him in interviews now, he, he does not seem to be 100% there. Could you mind if Don King worked at like Brewster's? If, if you went to go order <laughs> your ice cream from Brewster's and Don King. Peanuts? Peanuts? <laughs> <laughs> you want some hot sauce on your, on your screen? <laughs> On your screen. That's what I call ice cream. <laughs> Fool, make it scream. scream. <laughs> 
So, yeah, so uh, Alex Shondor Burns was uh, an absolute monster, would kill a, a man in front of his own child, in front of Chuck Liddell at a ice cream parlor. Then <laughs> <laughs> what happens is it, perhaps he recognized an untapped revenue stream considering the success King is having with numbers. So Burns approached him with, you know, basic extortion attempt. He tells King that he will make him a protection offer for a mere $200 a week. That's 1954 money, $200. 2000 a week, roughly? Something like that, yeah. I didn't look up that one on an inflation calculator. <laughs> it just always baffles me how that whole thing went down. I'll protect you for $200 a week. Yeah. Meaning, I won't rob you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, pay that's, me $200 that's a, a week. But if anybody else robs you, I'll protect you. That is actually true. That's the thing. Like In the mob extortion racket, protection just means that they won't fuck your shit up. Right. Yeah. Like, but, but, that, but they I mean, would protect you, it, you know, if what, you that, were paying them, though, know, right? It's mafia insurance. It's like uh, Maflac. It's like supplemental, <laughs> um, some sort of mafia. Maflac. Mafia, yeah, Maflac yeah. or Mall State. Uh, <laughs> Mall State. Mall State. Uh, mis, mis State Farm. Yeah, Mistake exactly. Farm. Yeah. Would be. Myco. It's, <laughs> it's mafia employed insurance <laughs> company. <laughs> Oh, we get the best rates unless we always get the best rates, no matter what. No matter you what. ever check Michael, you could say fifteen percent. Yeah, and they, they have like the caveman commercials, but instead it's just like Polly Walnuts from the Sopranos. <laughs> Unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, it's they, it's all out of fear. You're just terrified. These guys, they're basically telling you, "I will burn your shit down unless you pay this." Man, That's, you got to have some serious clout at that point to like to be able to just pull. The, think about like how that conversation plays out. Like, yeah, it's like, hey, I shot want- a fucking dude in front of his kid at an ice cream parlor. By the way, I would like to protect well, you. Well, I shot a dude too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, King's like, yeah, hey, man, I got some skin in this game. But at the same point, think about what he did. He walked up to a dude who has already killed the dude and said, "Hey, man, you're gonna pay me two hundred dollars a week, or bad things are gonna happen yeah. to you." And you're already, he's saying this to a, what's considered already a bad dude. Right. Like, that dude was a, a bad dude. Yeah. But yeah, it's also sure. different because at that point you have like the Italian mafia who's connected all the way through the country. And then you have dudes like Don King who are smaller, like street hustler guys who are making good money, but they don't have those connections and they don't have like systematic violence as an incentive. It's just like, you know, that's that's the problem. It's so like minor the, leagues versus the major leagues. It's exactly yep. what it is. Yep. And in fact, you know, in those normal situations, most people uh, in that situation would likely take that offer. I mean, it really accounts for maybe one or two percent of what you're making. And it keeps a dangerous gangster like Shonda Burns from, you know, like fucking killing you in front of your <laughs> in front of your kid outside of a basket and robin. I'm just going to wear a bulletproof vest. My hair protect the rest. And the good Lord, are we with me? Come on, kids, get your ass in the back of my Cadillac. We're we getting out. We're getting ice cream. That's good. But yeah, uh, King did refuse. Yep, told him hell no. That's right. He said uh, he he told Shonda. He said uh, no thanks, man. He said that amounts just a little bit absurd to be quite honest. And uh, Shonda Burns was like, well, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask, I guess. But yeah, I totally understand. Two hundred bucks uh, isn't cheap, I suppose. And he left young Don King alone. I'm just kidding. He uh, totally blew up Don King's house. Holy yes, shit. he did. Blew up his house? Yeah, yep. for, uh, from this article I found in New York Magazine from 1991. It says, quote, I got a call. This is a guy, actually, this is a police captain, Carl DeLau, a retired Cleveland uh, police captain. He said, I got a call in the middle of the night from King saying his house was blown up. I says, how do you know? 
He says, I'm looking at my front wall and it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just picturing Don King standing in his, his like living room, like with his hair all like blown up. Maybe that's where the idea for the hair came. <laughs> it's like all blown up and just looking out into like his neighbor's he front. He said, well, I'm sorry that happened to you, Don, but I got to be honest, that haircut is something extra. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty badass. Well, it's, it's like fucking calling Microsoft help line. They're like, is your device plugged in? You know what I mean? It's like, how do you know there's a bomb went off in your house? There was a loud fucking explosion and there's a, the front is missing. Yeah, it's a super it dumb question. Got, yeah, I mean, like, yes, the goddamn thing's plugged in. Yeah. Yes, a bomb went off in my fucking house. My walls are missing, you fuckface. Like, <laughs> something happened. But when he got there, uh, Don King was like, Shonder Burns did it. Dun, dun, dun. Police Captain DeLau actually persuaded King at this point. To help him make an extortion case. Now, the thing is, Police Captain DeLau had been investigating Don King for like 10 years, right? Like trying to find a way to get him. Can't catch me! <laughs> I'm the gingerbread man! <laughs> so, so now they're like working. It's like at the end of a, of a, of a comic book uh, movie. You know where they like the the bad guys like or they they team up. They're like, well, we got to work together now to make this make this right. <laughs> we gonna get Shonda. Yeah. <laughs> so Shonda. Remember Ferris Bueller's yeah. name? It was Shauna. Shauna. Shonda. 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 Well, get that fool, man. He said, well, let's work together and make this happen. So he persuaded him to actually work on an extortion case against Shonda Burns. But this didn't actually go well for King either, because just a few weeks before King is supposed to testify against Shondor, he gets shot in the back of the head with a 12-gauge shotgun. Holy shit. Yeah. Live through that one, too. <laughs> Guys, can't get me. Only in America. Only can't in America. Get me, folk. What? <laughs> Some of them got pulled out. Some of them came out my ears. Some of them spiked my hair for the rest of my life. Only in America can't kill me, folk. <laughs> uh, that is actually yes. That some what you said is absolutely true because he said that uh, yes, some of them came out of his. Uh, they pulled some of the shotgun pellets out of his neck and his head, and some of them did gradually <laughs> go out through his ears. What I like to imagine oh is that uh, <laughs> I told you, yeah. So hold on, I like to imagine Don King in like nineteen. What is this, 1957 or something like that? And he's got uh, shotgun pellets coming out of his ears like they're like the, the the earrings you first get when you first pierce them. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, Donald King starting something cool, man. Oh, hello. Let me scream at this bill collector real quick. I mean, he's fucking raising his voice. Blood pressure's getting elevated. All of a sudden, there comes fucking, yep. There it is. Oh, Lord. Yep, cool. Another one of them pellets on came out my ear. They all making their way out. I'm a, exactly like the tooth fairy going to come put $50 on my pillow. This Terry tooth fairy I have, he don't put $1 bill. He'll put a $50 bill for this shotgun pellet under my pillow. Don Gone with your story, mate. Don King just turned into Mr. T. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fool who tried to shoot my head off with a 12 gauge. He said, in front of an ice cream parlor, he said, I like rock and roll. Give <laughs> me peanut buster pistachio. <laughs> peanut buster parfait. Make it buster it. <laughs> his, his wife is like, Jesus Christ, Don. She said, There's metal pieces coming out of your ears. I mean, I got Q-tips with bullet pellets coming out of it. That's right. <laughs> you know, you get my blood pressure up. You be yelling. You be asking about the bills and all. You be asking me for makeup and all. You be making me mad. You be not washing my dishes. Be making my 
food all wrong. My dinner ain't hot when I get home late. <laughs> you gonna be asking everything. Yeah, I'm gonna have some metal coming up my head for two years. You gonna have to adapt and overcome. You know what I'm saying? Just oh. give me making necklace for me. God damn it! Only in America. <laughs> what is uh? What is Don King's uh, meal? What is what is his? What is Don King's favorite dinner? Don't do this, no. Cause, I, I, all right. I'm not going to say. He strikes me as a, no, yeah, hold on. <laughs> this is not a loaded question. Let me frame That's this correctly. It's like a loaded shotgun I, was, I honestly was going to say, like, he strikes me as a lasagna man. Like Garfield? I actually think he would like like prime rib. Yeah, oh, there you go. Okay. You're absolutely yeah, right. You know. He's going to a strip club, and he's eating prime rib while mm, a butt is, in prime rib. <laughs> while a butt is spread in front of him while he... Gotta totally. Got to get that buffet. <laughs> mm, he said, mm, 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 only in America. Prime rib and butt. <laughs> and I can see it. He said, you're winking your butthole at me. Everything is fantastic. <laughs> mm, this prime rib is delicious. Mm, smells a lot like your butthole. <laughs> it all kind of smells the same. So anyways, look, King eventually... <laughs> King... Uh, <laughs> King eventually decides, even with getting smoked by a uh, 12 gauge and surviving somehow, which I still I don't understand the mechanics of that. In the back of the head, yeah, like I mean, I'm, that's lucky. not the hardest part of the head. I would no, uh, or I the guy imagine. had to be far away. I'm thinking I'm so. Guessing. I'm thinking they, like the guy just screwed it up. And was like, I'm 80 yards away, and you know, and then Shonda was like, Did you good him? <laughs> good him. He said, "Yeah, I got him. him." He said, "Good. He's dead." He was like, "Well, no, I no, loaned him." He said, <laughs> "He said, <laughs> he said, uh, did you take care of business?" He said, well, "Well, yeah." He said, "What'd you get him with?" He said, "A shotgun." Oh he, hell yeah! You know said, we did the job, oh, right? He is yeah, done. Nice. He goes, "Well, no, the thing I I only saw him like he was like on the other side of the street." And, uh, you know, he's uh, kind of far away. So the spread was probably about three feet by the time it hit him. So, you know, he just got showered. You mean to tell me you had a clean shot and you used it with a shotgun? I mean, you paid Wait, me $15. Where's this guy from? I don't know. Uh, well, he's from Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. Okay. So my accent's good. It's all yeah. right. We can work with that. I, for a second, I was thinking about David Ortiz and I've about yeah, the guy that, Dominican. that was paid to shoot him point blank and whiffed on that and shot him in the back and he lived. Ah. Like, you're paid to kill a dude and you have a point blank shot from behind. You don't go for the head anyway. Yeah. But the just, guy screwed it up. The guy, obviously, I think that he probably shot from way too far away. Yeah. But uh, you know, King uh, valiantly uh, pushes forward and testifies against Shondor in court, even after getting plugged with a shotgun shell. And it turns out to be the right call because Shondor is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Wow. Oh, just right. kidding. The defense attorneys absolutely skewer King over his shadowy background in criminal relations. The case ends with a hung jury, and Shonda Burns walks away a free man. Oh, man, I'm sure he was shitting his pants at that point. It had to be pretty scary. I mean, he got his house blown up, blown away with a, or not blown away, but he got shot with a 12-gauge, and the guy walks on a hung jury. And the police later discovered that the one juror who refused to convict had, in fact, been paid off by Burns. That's awesome. So, you know what? You go home and tell your wife. Pack your shit. We're moving. We have to leave Cleveland. <laughs> Cleveland. Immediately. As yep. much as I love Cleveland, we've got to go. When you got to go, you got to yep. go. Time to go. Absolutely. When Shondor is found not guilty and Shondor's yeah. better, better apple than you are. I also want to say right now that like I having to repeatedly say Shondor is <sighs> it's just a weird name. Shondor, Condor. Oh, well, my, but here's what but it makes here, you think, you know. Here's what I'm at is. Every time we think about Cleveland, all I think of is Bone Thugs and Har Harmony. And when Jim I hear Carey. when I hear Shondor, 
it sounds like a character in a Bone Thugs and Harmony song. Sean, don't me. Oh, yeah, Sean, yeah, don't Sean, you, you won't be lonely. <laughs> you know, it's, it's where I'm at right now. It's Sorry. fair enough. I'm trying to get through it. So, but, uh, yeah, it's a minor setback for King getting your house blown up and getting shot with a 12 gauge. He keeps plugging away at the numbers racket and he develops a, actually a pretty ingenious system, sort of an insider trading setup that allows him to make even more money from his own numbers business. Uh, without going into too much detail, by con- remember what I was saying that the numbers were based on the stock market movement. If you can day. get the information before everybody, right? Else, but you, um, they, they have to run it on that day the way it ends, so yep. you can't know beforehand you, unless you have a guy running the info straight from New York. Well, what what he did was he and late in the day he would contact a broker in New York City, uh, and he would get a bead on the market movement. And so what he was able to do was he could figure out a way to place bets that effectively drop the odds of winning on a bet. From roughly 500 to 1 down to 200 to 1. That's a pretty big improvement. It's right a there. huge improvement, and he's still getting paid out 500 to 1, so it's, it's a win the whole way. <clears throat> uh, so by 1966, Don King, of course, is rolling in tons of cash. He's a well-known quantity in Cleveland, rolling around town in a brand-new Cadillac convertible, always carrying a couple grand in cash in his pocket, which is like the equivalent of $15,000 today. Like just having fifteen grand on you. In cash. I mean, that's what I usually walk around town with. Oh yeah, I'm just ready to get robbed. Uh, but he also, in, in that case, he carried a loaded, unregistered three fifty seven Magnum in his belt. Huh. Yeah, sounds like an average Tuesday. Fifteen k in cash yeah. and an unregistered gun yeah. in my belt. Yeah, <laughs> going to Publix. Exactly. All right, here we go. So, 1966 on April 20th of that year, Don King was not a happy man. He's unhappy because a man by the name of Sam Garrett, a one-time friend and employee of his, owed King money on a bet that King had made utilizing his insider number picking method. The amount was $600. It's a little under five grand today. So it's not an insubstantial amount, but I suppose. But again, Don is usually carrying like four times as much in cash on him at any given time. So... Either way, Don is mad enough that he confronts Sam Garrett at the Manhattan Tap Room around noon of that day. So Sam Garrett reminds me of um, the guy with the mustache that played the cop. Sam Elliott? Sam Elliott, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Except that this guy looked nothing like Sam Elliott. <laughs> but he sounds similar. It sounds like a tombstone type of Sam Yeah, Garrett. Sam Garrett oh, yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Total cowboy name. According to reports, the two men argued at the bar for several minutes, King standing very close to Garrett, using his girth and size and loudness. <laughs> <laughs> I know I get a good laugh out of girth. As a form of physical intimidation, what a lot of people said was that Don King was not really up to confronting people that were his own size. Like, he was a bit of a bully, huh. right? And, uh, and he was proven he wasn't a very good fighter. He lost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he got flatlined yeah. in his fourth fight and knew to walk. At least he had the sense to walk away from it at that point. And Garrett, by all accounts, was a small sickly man, a drug addict with tuberculosis and his kidneys removed, who, even without the disease or addiction issues, probably wouldn't weigh over 150 pounds soaking wet. Anyway, the dispute uh, spills out onto the crowded Cedar Avenue. Suddenly, King began to attack the smaller man, and someone said, this was not a fight, it was a beating. King outweighed Garrett by 100 pounds, and King had a gun while Garrett was unarmed. By the time a couple of police officers pull up, a crowd was formed, and the much larger Don King is just absolutely stomping the shit out of the diminutive Garrett. So you ask, why doesn't somebody stop this, right? 
Right. In fact, when I was reading it, like it sounded like people were at least initially were like sort of cheering him on. Oh, geez. This <laughs> yeah. is like American History X style. Like or, Edward Norton's just like yeah. pounding them. Once you get a seeing a dude that's unconscious and their head bouncing off the concrete, mm-hmm. it's it's time to. But but here's here's but yeah, my, but my whole this point. is also like a David versus well, Goliath. No, no, but no. Goliath is getting well, I mean, my, just whole, my whole point is dude had a gun in his hand. You know what I mean? Like, are you going to run up to a dude with a gun in his hand? But like, hey, true. man. Yeah, it's time to chill. He might be like, hey, man, it's time for you to die, too. Yeah, Yeah. you you might not intercede, but maybe if you're not being like, kick his ass, (laughs) kick his ass, sea bass. Oh, man, Don King, I'm going to leave that one alone over there, boy. Oh, Lord, he going to town on that, boy. He's got a pistol and he's got lots of money. I'm going to leave it alone. He got that dang old Cadillac. I'm going to leave it. You see what he did to him for just $600? Shit. Yeah. So by the time that police officers pulled up, like I said, a crowd had formed around that was Bull uh, from uh, Night Court. Yeah, absolutely. It was the same guy. <laughs> His name was actually Detective Bob Tun. <laughs> Bobton. Bobton. <laughs> Bobton. Uh, according to the police report, the first thing Detective Bob Tun of the Cleveland PD noticed from the radio car was a man's head bouncing off the asphalt pavement like a rubber ball. Oh, Jesus. Then he saw a large man standing over him with a gun in his right hand, applying another kick to the head. And apparently King's kicks to Garrett were so ferocious that, quote, King's heavy shoes left footprints on Garrett's cheekbone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah, he's just straight he's getting up. Getting a Kirby. Yeah, he's basically curb stomping the hell out of a, out of a sickly, like, Tiny, tiny little man. Well, that, and he had to see the cops coming and just like, I don't know. He might have been in that rage mode. You know what I mean? And there was a crowd just standing around, but apparently there was enough view for them to see this dude getting played like a basketball on, uh, you get to play like sweet George Brown. Do, 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 Harlem Globetrotters just like dribbling that dude's head off. I'm going to make up for the time that I lost my fourth fight. <laughs> and now I'm going to smash this guy to the fucking ground. Man, of course, Sam Garrett would go on to die shortly after the attack. And King would have his second body on his record. King said the story so was... He, little, is yeah. he in boxing, promoting boxing at this point? No, not at all. So before he's even promoting boxing, he's already killed two people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, he didn't promote any boxing until after this. And we'll get into that here in just a second. But now King... King's account was very different. According to him, from this 1998 Chicago Tribune article I found, King said he turned away from Garrett and headed to his Cadillac convertible, which was parked outside the tavern, which I love. He's like, so I was uh, heading outside to my Cadillac convertible. You know what I'm saying? You know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, America, baby. (laughs) So then uh, King says Garrett attacked him. He said, I was getting in the car when the man said, you Mickey Mouse motherfucker, you ain't going to do this to me. (laughs) (laughs) King said, uh, he jumped me from behind and I turned and we started fighting, tussling and kicking and he got his head hit on the ground. But uh, police and Garrett's widow, Flora, however, uh, dispute that account. According to them, the six foot two, 260 pound King pistol whipped and stomped the sickly 140 pound Garrett until as Flora Garrett said, quote, his brain turned to jelly. Oh, oh my wow. God, man. J-E-L-L-O. Oh, yeah. Well, that, and it, it's like one of those things where the 26-year-old on meth who, like, beats his baby to death, <laughs> and is like, he wouldn't shut up. He just kept crying, and I just shook him a little bit, and they're like, it no. was It was already pretty dark, and I think he just took it to, like, the seventh <laughs> level of hell. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. He said, but it's just like that time that they murdered a baby. <laughs> but after this, Don King wouldn't be so lucky to get that justifiable homicide charge he got from the, the previous one. This time he did big boy prison time. All right. So hang on. I thought about this when I, I knew he did almost four years, three years and 11 months or whatever it was. Dude, what kind of lawyer does he have? Like a four, good, a good four years for murder? Yep, a good one. Two bodies in, in a span of like 12 years or whatever well, it was. You can put you out sometimes. Yeah. And again, if you're in that situation where it's like a known criminal quantity, like the cops just don't really give a shit. They just want to clear the case. They're like, oh, so you killed a guy that was in your numbers racket? Like, you're going to have to get something. But it isn't the equivalent of like, you killed a 17-year-old right. uh, white girl from a very nice neighborhood. Right. So, while Don King is in prison, my question, does he get his hair braided? Like Mario from that song, come on and braid my, my hair. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Like, like, come on and braid my because hair. Because there's a lot of time to talk about it, and he has got that head of hair. And, I mean, you could do some swirl world stuff. <laughs> It with looks it, like he already his, got a swirly. That, no, that's what I'm saying. Like you can know, so like some swirl world type braids. Yeah. Where you make like a gray white swirl. Like you could do some serious prison style awesome cookies and cream hair. That, yes, there you are. Exactly. I just want to know if they ever braided his hair up cookies and cream style in prison. <laughs> and, uh, I'll be. I, I, think, did, I made a note of that. Did Don King braid his hair in prison? Yeah, I think one of my written notes for the show. You can actually see his mugshot from this, and his hair was not anything like we know Don King as. Wasn't long enough to braid. Uh, No, it was. It was more. Mikey, come on, man. Maybe maybe he didn't cut his hair for the four years that he was in, and that's like he came out as a. To be honest, it looked. uh, It looked a little little bit like LeBron post hair implants. (laughs) Damn it! So it was like a shaved head. No, 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 no. But yeah, like, like where it looks sort of. He didn't of, have the crowning effect going on. Yeah, he didn't have like the doll hair plugs going in. I it just was, always think of him as having long hair, and that's then he goes the only to prison way to and goes to get a cookie and cream hair braiding job. It's a by totally one of valid question. In prison, and he has the dopest cornrows in all of Leavenworth. Of E Block, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. E Block, yeah. He's just running it. Uh huh. Yeah. Just selling oh, and and selling, yeah, cigarettes. selling. Oh, selling Pack cigarettes. Cigs. Freaking. Extorting people for boiled their peanuts for their yeah. uh, peanuts. For their... Get your pe- get your hair get your hair get your peanuts. Oh get man, your penis. dude, he was running book money. He See was in the showers extorting people for their book money. He has oh, he, he ate so he many to... honey buns. Like he should have been called King Honey Bun. Yeah, he was. They're probably moon pies back in those days, right? Yeah, yeah it's it certainly been. not ramen noodles. That's the new jail currency now. It is. Yeah, yeah. It's not cigarettes anymore. It's ramen noodles. This is what we. How come do you cook to. ramen noodles like at jail? Toilet. Yeah, you heat the water up. I don't know if that's true, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they get access to like a microwave. But actually, what's funny is that you're saying that, but what he says he did is he just hid away and he read a ton of stuff. King he says, became an educated man. That's exactly right. Uh, he he said he divides his life into two categories before penitentiary and after penitentiary. There's uh, no doubt that his time in prison expanded King's ambition. He read voraciously, and by the time he got out, he had built up the lexicon of quotations and malapropisms that would turn him into one of the greatest talkers of all time. <clears throat> so, like I said, he spent a lot of time like reading. He read widely in literature and philosophy and getting the education he had bypassed before. As he put it himself, quote, I didn't serve time. I made time serve me. 
He went in with a bachelor's in hustling and came out with a doctorate and being it's, an asshole or something. <laughs> being, yeah. Well, it's kind of, I just can't imagine being Don King's cellmate. <clears throat> yeah. How much could you believe from that guy? If like every night, you know, you're hearing stories from him. It reminds me of like Blow when Johnny Depp's oh, in yeah, there yeah. in his cell, you know, talking to what's his name. And it would be cool. But except for in Blow, he's like getting, it's like transactional with like Don King. You're just getting ripped off. You're like, somehow. Don ended up getting all of my ramen noodles, and I agreed to it. I can't understand. I gave him all my moon pies. He was so good at telling me it made sense. Okay, so learn a little bit about making ramen noodles in prison. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, apparently, yes, they um, heat the water up. You know how they use the batteries in a tattoo gun to create heat? Right. They do the same thing with almost like a little circle of aluminum foil. Okay. And they'll put the a water cup, essentially yeah. a, a, like a, a jail-issued water cup with the hot water, get the water kind of hot, and let the ramen steep in it. But how much ramen can you fit in one of those jail-issued water cups? You can probably, uh, it doesn't say, but I'm guessing you probably bust that thing in about three. Not like enough three. for your roommate. <laughs> yeah. All right. But here's, Cellmate, I here's, guess, here's, right? Here's where, uh, here's where it got good. So, yeah, you save the packets and you create different seasoning combinations with them. <laughs> but then when they serve like beef stroganoff and chunky proteined items at lunch. Save it. You put them in your pocket Gross. or your bra or wherever. Oh. In your bra? <laughs> <laughs> if you're a at woman. co-ed, co uh, yeah, co-ed yeah, prison. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Don. <laughs> hey, you better be rocking that double D, motherfucker. But yeah, hey, Don, yeah. let me put some beef stew in your hair real quick. <laughs> They save chunky pieces of protein, put it in their underwear, take it back to their cell, and when they make their ramen later, uh, they'll add the pieces of protein to make different sources. He said, that's weird. So that doesn't on. taste like ground beef. So I, have, I have a gel recipe. <laughs> it was two days ago. Listen, I have a gel recipe right here for us called Orange Porkies. Orange <laughs> Porkies is one pack of ramen, any flavor, a cup of boiling water, one cup of cooked white rice, about three tablespoons of unsweetened orange-flavored Kool-Aid, one bag of pork rinds or uh, pork skins. Hell yeah. Delicacy. Yeah. You crumble it up like it's the, it's, it's the seasoning. That's exactly right. Crush the ramen into the wrapper and empty into a large bowl. Save the seasoning packet for another use. Add the water, cover, and let it sit for eight minutes. Drain off the water, add the rice, and stir it in. Set it to the side. Pour the Kool-Aid into a large... Oh my God. Wait, hold bowl. on. Kool-Aid is getting included? The Kool-Aid oh, mix. Yeah. yeah, the Kool-Aid mix is part of the ingredients. It's called, they're called orange coolies. That Where, makes sense now. I feel a little personally porkies, offended at this porkies. point. This is my lunch at work every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you uh, pour the Kool-Aid into a large microwave bowl, add a teaspoon or two of hot water, stir until a syrupy consistency, toss a handful of pork skins into the syrup and stir, repeat until all the pork skins are coated. Cover and microwave the pork skins about five minutes until they puff. Reach into your butt crack and add meat. Yep. Serve the pork oh. skins on top of the ramen and rice. Mm. And then this one is literally called Prison Gourmet. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there is a ramen recipe online called Prison Gourmet. Yeah, the ingenuity of prisoners is pretty impressive. It really sometimes. is. It's, uh, uh, it really is. I've heard stories that, I mean, have just blown my mind. All right. On uh, September 30th, 1971... Don King was paroled after serving three years and 11 months. Upon his release from prison, King hit the ground running. He was still wealthy, relatively young, and well-connected in Cleveland. So right after he gets out of prison, he ends up being able to purchase from a Cleveland city councilor a 40-acre farm 
for a mere one thousand uh, dollars. I wonder if he threatened to blow up his house. I, I well, this is where it gets weird. So the the farm was uh, happened to be occupied by a woman named Hattie Renwick, a widow who eventually married Don King. And to further the point of his connections, just twelve years after his release from prison, King was issued a full pardon for murdering Sam Garrett by then Ohio Governor James Rhodes. And this was like one of his last actions as governor. So and a lot of people were like... Imagine the shit he had on him, I guess. Yeah, well, a lot of people were saying that like, you know, he'd given him a ton of money for campaign contributions, but it was one of his last acts. He's like leaving the office of governor and he completely pardons Don King for fucking curb stomping Sam Garrett. The 11th hour pardon. And one last thing, just the, his power continues. Uh, just this year, the Cleveland City Council is fully expected to name the stretch of road where he stomped Sam Garrett to death, Don King Way. Only in America. Y'all heard what I'm talking about. <laughs> Look, you do a lifetime of good things. You do things for good cities like Cleveland. Like Cleveland, where I'm from. I didn't mean to stomp that man out. He, he came, came after me. He wronged me. He jumped me. He called me a Mickey Mouse motherfucker. And that first guy, hell, he tried to rob me. Y'all don't know shit. That stretch road going to be Don King Parkway. The weird thing to me is that they could have just named it like Don King Street, but they named it Don King Way. So it's like <laughs> the this way is the of way. Yeah. <laughs> so poor Sam Garrett's wife and kids are like, every time they have to drive by, they're like, it is the Don King Way. Yeah. Boys, I'm just getting started. <laughs> So in 1971, Don King was released from prison after serving a pretty measly three years and 11 months for stomping a man half his size to death. Less than four years. That's it. Yeah. Three years and 11 months. That's all he got. I got to know who your lawyer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he got him off Angie's list, just like John Gotti. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he spent his prison stint reading literature and philosophy, planning for his future, and growing his locks into the now world-famous tall crown hairdo that we all immediately think of whenever his name is uttered. So there is a real possibility that he did do the cookies and cream swirl that uh, Hot Rod Randy ha. and Buddy were talking about. Told you. <laughs> it looked better in the braids. Well, he might have braided it too. I think someone was like, you're Don King. You should have a crown. And he was like, every king needs a crown. Do you think he asked at one point, like, do you think that they sell crowns in the commissary? Like the Burger King <laughs> crowns you used to get when you were a kid? <laughs> I don't got no money for that. I got money for my hair. Just use your hair. Just use your hair, Don. Oh, man. So when he gets out, he's still a known quantity, man. The streets of Cleveland had not forgotten about him. He was a local celebrity, still a powerful man who had a lot of friends in the national entertainment industry. And Don King's position between these two junctures, the city of Cleveland and famous names in the entertainment industry, is what ultimately leads King down the path to boxing history. See, in the city of Cleveland, there was a hospital which mostly catered to its low-income black community. And around the time of King's release from prison, this hospital, the Forest City Hospital, was on the verge of bankruptcy and closure. I'm not sure that he had the idea originally or if he just decided to manage it somehow. But either way, Don King ended up pulling off a thing where he gathered a bunch of his friends in the music industry to throw a fundraiser to keep that hospital from shuttering. He got commitments from famous musical acts at the time and began soliciting wealthy people and churches for donations. In one famous fundraising exchange with an elderly, well-to-do, church-going couple, Don King sold them on the importance of the black people supporting their local community like this. According to another man involved in the fundraising efforts, Don King says, We are black 
and we have nothing. We don't have expensive suits or big houses or luxury vacations. We are poor. All we got is our word. Our only invention that belongs to us is a word. And that word is motherfucker. Nobody can take that from us. That's our word. That's a black word. We should be proud of that word. It's our heritage. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. Holy shit, that's a live speech that he gave? Yeah, according to uh, Don Elbaum, he was another event promoter that worked with him on this event. He said he was in the room at the time, and that's literally what he said. So Don Elbaum said as soon as King said this, the elderly devout couple flinched. But King either didn't notice or just didn't give a shit. Uh, He continued on telling the couple that every black person should walk down the streets of Cleveland with their heads held high, their chest out, saying, Motherfucker. Black people should stand on top of buildings and shout, motherfucker. Seriously, though, I mean, coming out of prison, it sounds like it reformed him. Honestly, Mm -hmm. going in, he had, you know, kind of been a dirty, shady guy, Mm -hmm. served a bunch of time. And from what I was learning, he, you know, read a lot while he was in there and came out with semi-good intentions, right? Right. That's what it would appear. I mean, it seems like an, an objectively good thing to try to save a poor hospital that is shutting down that serves a you know poverty ridden portion of the community they need that so okay you know some points there <laughs> i'm gonna make a little bit of money though <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so elbaum said at the point uh, that uh, he was going going what, on and on what is the elbaum like what word would be considered the elbaum oh man loins <laughs> I mean, the loins is just a gross word. It is. A yeah. Cloth. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, uh, if you're trying to get hot and heavy with your uh, significant other and you're like, oh, my loins are on fire? <laughs> like, it immediately is just gross, like. Gross, Randy. Yeah. Stop talking like that. <laughs> she was like, but speaking of that, a pork tenderloin would be good right now. Mm-hmm. Rosemary, garlic, yum. Smoke that. He's like, smoke this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, Donald Elbaum. Donald lo- loin, <laughs> loin uh, bomb. <laughs> lo- loin I'm gonna bomb. come over and loin bomb you tonight. <laughs> he said he could only stare at the floor in nervous belief. But before he knew it, King had both the elderly man and woman soon after practically shouting "motherfucker" at the top of their lungs. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and most importantly, they ended up donating to the Forest City Hospital fundraiser. So yeah, Don King, a consummate salesman, even if his delivery is on the non-traditional side. So through his musical connections and through this fundraising event, that's where King meets Muhammad Ali, the biggest name in sports at that time or arguably any time. And during one of these meetings, he convinced Ali to hold an exhibition match for the fundraiser. They, Did he uh, give him the motherfucker speech too? I, you know, I was thinking about that as I was going through this. I was like, I wonder what that conversation was like. I can tell you. I'll tell you how it happened. <laughs> okay. I walked up to him. I said, hey, champ, son, what you got on your shirt? Right there on your pocket. <laughs> Whoop! Gotcha! Gotcha! Gotcha, Muhammad Ali! Touch your face with my hands! <laughs> you wanna be a part of my match? See how quick my hands and my brain work? I bring all the people together, and you gonna be my centerpiece. You gonna be my centerpiece, and we gonna raise enough money to save the hospital. Your name gonna be at the top of the chart. You gonna be the best. You already the best. Come on with me. Come with me. Let's go do this. <laughs> Let's go do this, Muhammad Ali. I done got you. I done got you up my trick. We'll get a stain on your shirt trick. Got you on that one. Now, this time, we're going to go fighting, and you're going to win. You with me? 
Yeah, and Ali was like, yeah, that sounds good, I guess. And that's exactly how Muhammad Ali sounds to us. Seems pretty good to me. <laughs> Dave oh, Chappelle's a white guy. I don't, uh, all I right. Don't, I don't know, man. Your hands were pretty quick on my stain on my shirt trick. But I don't know. I just don't know. That is a pretty good uh, Ali. All right, dude. Uh, Frank Caliendo in the house, dude. Oh, uh, man. Muhammad Ali's like kids are listening to this. And they're like, bullshit. My dad did not sound like that. Tatiana Ali's going to come over and fight Randy. <laughs> yeah, not uh, real sure how that conversation would have gone. Though. I think it was probably pretty close to that. The old the old school, oldest trick in the book. There's a stain on your shirt, and then he flips Muhammad Ali's nose. Just to get him, you know, just to get him warmed up. Lighten the mood. Icebreaker. Yeah, exactly. So, he, yeah, he lands Ali. Uh, Ali at the time, and maybe even now, is the biggest name in sports. And during one of these meetings, yeah, Ali said, okay, he signs up for the fundraiser. Also, they fielded a number of undercard exhibition matches to balance out the affair. So it was half boxing, half live music. So, sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, sounds like a cool-ass yeah. event. It's Really cool idea. Yeah, I would love to go. Well, to I mean, it. this guy wasn't short on cool ideas. Only in America. Yeah, and it was, um, it was massively successful by uh, all accounts. The gate on the event brought in over $81,000. That's over half a million dollars in today's money. At the time, this was the largest in history for a boxing exhibition, surpassing an old record set in 1932 for a Jack Dempsey exhibition match with King Levinsky. Hmm. Hmm. So the day after the benefit, the Cleveland Papers declared the night a triumph and reported that the Forest City Hospital would receive between forty dollars and $50,000 for its operating fund. That's great news, right? Yeah. But not so fast, because King got a bit weird when it came time for the payout. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Exactly. According to one of the boxing trainers involved in the exhibition fight, getting his fighter paid for the exhibition match was nearly impossible. He explained that he had to, quote, fight like hell for payment and further explained, quote, this was Don King's absolutely first boxing show and he began his career by trying to stiff my black fighter out of $1,200 on a charity card for a black hospital. So if he's ripping off the fighters, do you think he's paying the hospital out? Well... No. Nah. According to Don Elbaum, the guy that was in the room for the motherfucker speech. <laughs> Don Loinbaum. <laughs> the guy that was in the room for the motherfucker speech. He said Ali got 10K for expenses. Elbaum, this is this guy's name is ruined forever. Loinbaum <laughs> was uh, paid only a thousand dollars of his promised five thousand dollars. The hospital only got fifteen hundred dollars and King pocketed the rest. There are other reports claiming that there was more given to the hospital, but either account says, you know, either it was $15,000 or $17,000, depending on which one you're based on. But the consensus was that Don King walked away with the majority of the money. So Don Shocker. Yeah. Don King's first foray into boxing, and he swindles almost everyone involved. And you would think that would spell doom for his boxing promotions career, but Don King did two things that mattered. One, he got the biggest fighter in the world perhaps the biggest fighter ever, on his card. And two, he didn't rip off the biggest fighter in the world. This yet. time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I trust you, Don. I trust you. <laughs> you paid me my money. You did what you said you were going to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all that matters. He lands the big fish, and now he can go to these other guys. And that's exactly what he does. He uses the success with landing Ali as a stepping stone to all the major fighters at that time. Fighters who... Just like everybody else, he would go on to screw out of money and or discard them after they no longer served a purpose for him. Let's examine some instances of this. In 1973, Don King would attend the heavyweight title fight between Joe Frazier and George Foreman in Jamaica. 
Well, I actually should put it this way. King rode to the fight in a limousine with Joe Frazier, the then undefeated heavyweight champion, fresh off his world-shocking defeat of Muhammad Ali. But when Foreman unexpectedly finished Frazier off in just the second round, King quickly found his way into the ring to hug Foreman. He would ultimately leave the country with Big George, leaving his target prospect, Joe Frazier, behind to wallow in his unanticipated loss. Man, how did Frazier feel like that? Like, He's in the ring. He's already pissed off that he lost so quick. And his manager just walks straight across like, fuck you. Yeah. Oh, my God. It sounds like a New England Patriots fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, it's just crass. I can understand if you were like, it's business. Okay. You want to get the guy that's the bigger name, but don't do it in front of in the f- other guy. I you know, mean, you go and back in front to the of hotel. everybody, yeah. too. Yeah. And if I was George Foreman, I would stiff arm that motherfucker and be like, who are you here with? You leave with the person you came to the dance with. That's the rule. Then you can go back to your hotel. Then you can call and be like, hey, I would like to represent you as well. That could have been King's whole thing is I'm going to be seen with the best, the winner, the champ every time. That's exactly what it is. That's yeah, why that's anytime just- that you see the fights, that he's always in the background. Oh, yeah. there. He's yeah. always holding their hand up. He's 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 trying to be seen. Well, mm-hmm. he can also spin that to the press as well. I was right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was right there with him right yeah. when the fight ended. Yeah. You know, it's just disgusting self promotion. Oh, yeah. He's great at. He's just that you have to be a shameless person to do this type of shit. He certainly is that. So, and I, like I said, I'm sure that uh, fighters like Frazier and Foreman likely recognize King for the snake that he was, and this could have put you know Hertz on his aims of being a huge boxing promoter. But in 1974, King would coordinate and pull off what is arguably the biggest single sporting event in the 20th century, the Rumble in the Jungle. That was the famous heavyweight title fight between the then-aging legend Muhammad Ali and the young powerhouse George Foreman. The fight took place in Kinshasa, Zaire. So here's how this broke down. King managed to get Ali and Foreman to sign separate contracts, saying that they would fight for him if he could get them $5 million purse. That's right. huge money. That's yep. huge. Yeah. The thing, too, is, is like the amount was so high that apparently he'd done this to make sure that once he landed them, no other top boxing promoters could steal his guy. Right. Mm-hmm. So he has to go about getting that money, though. He has no way. He doesn't have $10 million, $10 million to cover either one of them. And that's when he ends up and he can't feel the fight in the U.S. There's no play. He doesn't have that sort of pull at that point. So sure. he ends up going to Zaire and working with Zaire's dictator, Mobutu Sese Seiko. And he persuaded Mobutu that the publicity for such a high-profile event would generate and help his regime. Mobutu agreed for the fight to be held in the country. But do you know who actually funded it? Who? It wasn't Mobutu. It was Muammar Gaddafi. Holy crap. Yeah, Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi came as a primary financial sponsor of the event, providing the purse money for the athletes and covering other expenses. Like all the hotel, all the accommodations and stuff like that. Yeah, he covered everything. He loved doing that shit. Libya had tons of oil money, and he was a big, like, pan-African nationalist, right? So he thought it would be great. He came in. Yeah, no one talks about that shit. Gaddafi funded the Rumble in the Jungle. Wow. And Mobutu (laughs) Sese Seiko was an asshole in his own right. Anytime I hear about Gaddafi, all I think about is getting a sword jammed up his ass. Gaddafi! Gaddafi! (laughs) Man, that guy... You know, I don't condone stabbing people in the asshole, but that guy, <laughs> that guy he had it coming. Yeah. yeah, he had that one coming. He did, man. So the other thing, too, the fight goes down. It's spectacular, like just historically great fight. A match for boxing history, for sure, with Ali managing to wear down and ultimately KO the previously thought indestructible killer, George Foreman. Nobody saw that coming. Nope. George Foreman was like an unstoppable force. 
Ali was aging out. Yep. This is the fight that truly makes Ali one of the greatest of all time, if not sure. the greatest. To sure. switch gears at that age, you know, that's when the rope dope yeah, happened. Absolutely. And he used it constantly. Like everybody thinks the rope dope only happened in that fight. But Ali changed his game plan. It was like, I will let someone punch themselves out. And it would be one thing if he won on points too, but he fucking knocked George Foreman out. Well, the thing with Foreman is he's a power puncher, and he, he that's how he won was usually in the first six to eight rounds yeah. with a knockout. Yeah. And Ali, like you said, if you sit and just make him, you know, he he blocked and took so many of the you know that's shots in the arms and in the head, in yeah, the head. yeah. I, he but uh, punching back for made, the first eight rounds. Made so. Foreman punch his arms out. Yeah. And then essentially had enough juice to yeah. You know, and that's, go in there and throw his combos that he was famous for. That's what's I incredible. Mean, change elevations up, down, in, oh, yeah. out. You know what I mean? And he had the great ability of once his opponent was hurt to go in there and finish. Oh yeah, he knew. He knew. He, that's mm-hmm. when you know. And that's one of the things you watch with boxers nowadays. You'll see a boxer get hurt, and you got to pounce, man. Yeah. But there was multiple times in that fight. As soon as former would stumble, mm-hmm. Ali was in attack mode, and that's yeah. how we wound up finish him off. He had a game plan, man, yeah. and he and he stuck to it, and it worked, dude. And that's the thing. Like I said, Frazier was coming off of a very well-deserved win over Ali. Joe Frazier's 15th round knockout or knockdown of Ali was insane. And then George Foreman comes in and clears Frazier in round two. So everybody, you know, yeah. if you go with the triangle theory of boxing, you're like, Ali lost to Frazier. Frazier gets smoked by Foreman. Foreman is going to absolutely annihilate Ali, and the exact opposite happens. It happens in Zaire in front of the entire world, and Don King gets to stamp his brand on that shit. Yep. Man, that is a beautiful marketing, yeah. beautiful idea, yep. and uh, help pave the way for him for a long time moving forward. That's exactly that's exactly it. Like I said, he Don King at this point would go on to be practically the only name in boxing promotion for the next two or three decades. I'm sure he sold it a lot of, at the time afterwards, just like, you're going to be the next Rumble in the Jungle. That fight is going to oh, be yeah. the next fight. He, you was, know. he was pivotal in the Thrill in Manila, Thrill too. Thrill in Manila, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, let's take a look at some of the ways that he has treated these fighters over the years, though. Speaking of which, he ended up ripping off uh, Ali in uh, 1980. So this is another fight. Uh, Ali was well past his prime. Everybody knew it. He had retired a couple times and just kept coming back. And Larry Holmes was the new kid on the street. Larry Holmes used to be Muhammad Ali's sparring partner. Larry Holmes loved Muhammad Ali. Don King forced the fight to happen for a payday for Muhammad Ali, and Larry Holmes just battered him. It was a sad, oh, It's a sad fight, dude. That's tough. I'm sure. Uh, imagine the guilt that you have after that fight if you're Larry. The rumor point. is Larry Holmes cried in the locker room. Oh, like he man. was that upset about having to beat up his idol, and it was it was I, I, it wasn't the same Ali from you know right. Rumble and Jungle. Yeah, certainly sure, not of course from not. yeah. So it's even that much more guilt that's laid on his shoulders. Yeah, but to add insult to injury, <laughs> he shortchanged Ali about 1.2 million of the eight million dollar guaranteed payout, and then when Ali was up in the hospital. He actually sent some uh, of his trusted people in there to pay Muhammad Ali with fifty thousand dollars in cash in a briefcase, and Ali sort of out of it just agrees to that. That's, and that's it was sad. like what one point two that he had shorted him. Yep, yeah, he was like, you get guaranteed eight million. He shorted him one point two million dollars, and settled up out of court for fifty grand. Cash. Yeah, exactly. Yep, God. that's insane, scumbag. Yep. Yeah, in nineteen eighty two, after a title bout with Jerry Cooney. Larry Holmes was shortchanged some 300000 by King. A few years later, while King was managing Michael Jackson's victory tour, Holmes sued King for a flagrant and fraudulent attempt to withhold a large sum of money. Holmes would later settle for a paltry $100,000. A third of what he was promised and just all the stress that came along with that. That's right. 1986, after successfully defending his belt in London against Frank Bruno, 
Tim Witherspoon was promised a $2 million purse. In typical King fashion, Witherspoon received a check for $100,000. Oh, my God. I just wonder how this continued to go on. Like, you know what I mean? He's had, obviously, a good reputation for getting the biggest fighters and the biggest mm-hmm. fights. But if they're not paying the guys, everybody knows he, you're not going to get paid if you go with them. It's strange. I know. I can't. What he did was he set it up where he was the player with all the pieces. So to make matches, you had to go through King. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm only going to pay you 5% of what I said I was going to yeah. pay you. Yeah, it's true, man. Following the loss, uh, Witherspoon took King and his son Carl to court. Oh, yeah. Witherspoon loses a fight suing on grounds of fraud and conflict of interest to the tune of $25 million. So he sues King for $25 million. During the suit, King froze Witherspoon out of a title bout Mm -hmm. and dragged the court case out to drain Witherspoon's prime years. Witherspoon eventually settled out of court for a million dollars, a fraction of his due and potential earnings. So that's exactly what we're talking about. Jeez, He's like, oh yeah, if you have a problem with me, well, I own all the other fighters too. You won't get these fights. And you're not even going to win in court either, so go fuck yourself. Yeah. yeah, basically, yeah. He's just like, you don't have any money, and you can't afford these attorneys. It's a very cynical play, obviously. Wow. Jesus. Mm-hmm. 1990, uh, we have the return of Don Loinbaum. Loinbaum. <laughs> <laughs> According to one of Don King's fellow promoters, Don Loinbaum, Don Elbaum, Meldrick Taylor was promised a purse of $1.3 million. The King-represented boxer was presented with a check for $300,000. Jeez, man. Yep. Pattern after pattern after pattern. Now, in the checks, I know a lot of the time they charge for trainer fees, um, facility fees, promotion fees, this fee, that fee, clothes, you know, wardrobe. Oh, yeah. All that. Is is that where he says the money is going? Sometimes it is, and sometimes he's just short paying them. (sighs) Okay. So that's what's interesting. So, yeah. And the thing is, is that Meldrick Taylor was like. If you want to watch a fight, watch Meldrick Taylor and Julio Cesar Chavez, right? Like, the dude was a super talent. And this basically just crushed him, man. This was the end of his career. In fact, now he just was arrested recently. He's a homeless vagrant, man. Oh, man. Yeah, Meldrick Taylor? Meldrick Taylor, man. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. And, uh, but yeah, according to, uh, to Don Elbaum, when Taylor protested, King threatened to have him killed. So I've already killed two people. I'll kill you too. Yeah. It's a known quantity at that point. He may kill you. So, yeah, throughout the 80s and 90s, King monopolized boxing's best by forcing representation. Using a contractual clause, anyone who wished to challenge a boxer belonging to King had to agree to be promoted by King in the future should he win. Mm. So he picks up a dude, then he's got a great fighter, fighter A, and he brings on the B side. And he's like, hey, B side, if you win, I'll do this deal. But if you win, you have to become my fighter now. Right. So Basically like the Suge Knight of mm-hmm. boxing almost. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so yeah, for instance, when you're talking about the trainer fees and stuff like that, he did this to Mike Tyson, notoriously. When Tyson got out of prison, he went through all of his accounting stuff at one point and realized, I think it was like $9,000 a month for towels. Towel use, yeah. Yeah, for towel yeah. use. Jesus. Yeah, and you know, according to Mike Tyson, he actually beat his ass. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Nice. About goddamn time. He's, uh, Tyson said, I confronted him. He basically denied it. And I attacked him in front of those old decrepit white women. <laughs> yeah, it was outside like some kind of like Beverly Hills hotel or something like that. And he just took him to town. That's right. Yeah. He said uh, Tyson would go on and say, he's a wretched, slimy, reptilian motherfucker. He would kill his mother for a dollar. <laughs> and he's right. So I think, honestly, at that point, Tyson blows the lid open on Don King. Yeah. That's when everybody realizes he's so open about it. And Tyson was such a huge name that he basically had fuck you money at that point. Mm-hmm. And that was really when everything started unwinding for Don King. And he hasn't been like 
much of a name in boxing promotion for a while now. But yeah, but he still actually has one fighter under his belt right now that I'm aware of. And I believe me and Hot Rod Randy watched this fight. Triple G versus Vanez Matrosoyan. Matrosoyan. There you go. Matrosoyan. Vanez. So he doesn't promote Triple G. He promotes Vanez. And Vanez actually got totally ripped off for that fight. Shocker. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huge, uh, huge ripoff. What happened with that fight was, so Vanez was being promoted by a guy named Al Heyman, who is like, they call him the dark lord of boxing. But he actually does a really good job for his fighters. They make a ton of money. They don't have to fight too often. But he owns, everybody fights for Al Heyman now. And he's very quiet behind the scenes. At some point, Vanez got dropped by Al Heyman, by PBC. And so his only option was to go to Don King. He said, I signed a deal with Don and he never gave me a fight for one year. He eventually gives him a fight out of nowhere. So he hasn't fought in like a year and a half. And Vanez Matrasoyan was a very good boxer. But he keeps him on ice for a while. And then he signs a deal to fight Triple G, who is obviously an absolute monster. Mm -hmm. So you come off of not fighting for two years. He hooks you up with Triple G basically to just get beat up, which is exactly what happens. And he was promised $400,000. And let's see here. He says, my paycheck for Golovkin was supposed to be $400,000. But Don King tried to take $300,000 and only gave me $100,000. I said, no, man, that's not fair. He took $225,000 and then he just sent me a 1099 for the money that he took. What the fuck? Yeah. So he said, I'll pay you $400,000 for this fight. And Vana is not having any representation. Is like, I got to do this for my family. I know I'm going to lose to Triple G. I'm going to get knocked out. Goes and gets knocked out. Don King's like, here's your check. It's $100,000. He's like, what the, the fuck, fuck is this? Yeah. And then to add insult to injury, he claims that he paid him out. So Vanez is on the hook t- to the IRS for the full $400,000. Jesus. The taxes on that are going to be about what he made. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, so now is uh, Don King's daughter is she's trying to rehabilitate his image, trying to say, you know, it's misunderstood. He made tons of people, tons of money. But look, man, the history is there. Right. And what's so irritating to me about Don King is. There's a couple things that I hate, right? I hate blatant hypocrisy. That's just obvious, right? And I hate charlatans, you know, people that prey on the hopes and fears and needs of people only to enrich themselves at the cost of those they are selling salvation to. And Don King is an absolute charlatan. He came into the boxing promotion game when there were legitimately, there weren't a lot of promoters looking out for black fighters. He sold himself as their representative, the guy that would treat them right because he himself had gone through all of that as a black man himself. And all he did was take their trust and faith and use it against them. To put the finest point on it possible, let's use Don King's own words in an article from 1998 as he walked through his own massive farm. He said, I love this country, brother. Where else in the world can an N-word like me do what I have done in less this country? You can see the setting in Georgia would be a plantation. Ain't nothing wrong with plantation living as long as you ain't the slave. So yeah, it's hard to hear that and not draw like a parallel. To how he feels about his fighters. Right. And yeah, he's a okay with using people for his own personal outcome, regardless of how it might ruin their lives. And that's certainly a long cry from his initial altruistic aims of being the next Clarence Darrow and fighting for the rights of individuals. So there it is. Don King, my All dudes. Right. All Man. right. Well, so after hearing all the evidence, I learned a lot. I learned a lot more detail in regards to how bad he fucked people over. Mm-hmm, right. I didn't know the detail about the whole numbers running racket. That's mm-hmm. always That was an interesting part, I thought, where yeah. I learned how they actually do stuff like that. Oh, we're running numbers. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, that's some sort of 
number scheme, but learning how it how it worked, that was kind of cool. Right. But at the end of the day, um, kill the guy. Two, two guys, guys. Two guys. Killed two guys. One was robbing him. One, he just sounded like he just beat the shit out of in a fight. Mm-hmm. And the shitty part about stealing guys, just taking money from them. You know yeah. what I mean? And it really kind of extorting their services the yeah. whole time. And these are guys he's supposed to protect. Yeah. Yeah. So, my end of the day asshole rating for Don King is going to be a 7.25. All right, 7.25 for Hot Rod Randy on Don King. Buddy? So after learning everything about him, I I knew he was an asshole to uh, just a boot before we even started the show. Learning the the intimate details of how he really fucked over everybody he worked with. I mean, is there anybody that he didn't fuck over Not in the really. process? No, I mean, every, every major fighter hates this guy. That's why he finally, when he was exposed by Tyson... Nobody deals with this guy. And even Vanez said when he took that contract that everybody was like, don't fucking do it. This guy is the devil. He's he going to fuck you up. Yeah. And he was like, I knew it. I knew that this was a risk. He's like, but I, I had to provide for my family. I, I have, have to, to take put food money. on the table. Yep. Yeah. So, and especially even his, his upbringings, I didn't know that he killed two people. And mm-hmm. especially he was able to get into boxing after that. Like people are still like trusting him to do, you know, be on the up and up right after he comes out of jail. Yeah. This guy just has a history of being an asshole his entire life. And, you know, maybe it stems from stuff that happened to him when he grew up. I don't know. I often think that you're you're the one that chooses your own destiny and you choose who you are mm-hmm. every day moving forward, not based on what happened to you, but what you do mm-hmm. from day to day. And this guy was just like, you know what? Fuck the world. I'm looking at it just for me. Based on all that, I'm going to have to give Don King a final asshole score of an 8.0. 8.0. Okay. Yeah, so that's feels pretty calibrated. I you know, I think he's a sociopath. There's just no way around it. He obviously only cares about himself. He screws people over constantly. You know, the murders are that's insane. I mean, even the first one, okay, maybe it was self-defense, but he did shoot the guy in the back, which seems like the guy was probably right. running away. <laughs> Uh, the second one was just a curb stomping of a tiny man, which is not cool. And again, like I said, I, man, I hate charlatans, dude. People that just abuse people to enrich themselves. So I, I feel I'm going to go with a 7.5. He's a bad dude, but, you know, he hasn't killed like hundreds of people, I guess. I don't know. So uh, the final asshole rating for Don King comes in at a 7.58 three carrying and that'll do it guys all right thanks for listening if you want to hear more of asshole court find us anywhere you download your favorite podcasts give us a good rating on your favorite platform it really does help you'll definitely want to follow us on facebook and instagram at ahc podcast and on twitter at ahc podcast we'd love to hear from you depending on what you have to say so until next time remember the golden rule and don't be an asshole or you might find yourself on Asshole Court.